first reading this morning is Micah chapter 7, verses 7 to 9 and 18 to 20, and it's found in your Bibles on page 707, if you want to follow with me. <clears throat> As for me, I look to the Lord for help. I wait confidently for God to save me, and my God will certainly hear me. Do not gloat over me, my enemies, for though I fall, I will rise again. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. I will be patient as the Lord punishes me, for I have sinned against him. But after that, he will take up my case and give me justice for all I have suffered from my enemies. The Lord will bring me into the light, and I will see his righteousness. And the next verse is verses 18 to 20. Where is another God like you, who pardons the guilt of the remnant, overlooking the sins of his special people? You will not stay angry with your people forever, because you delight in showing unfailing love. Once again, you will have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. You will show us your faithfulness and unfailing love as you promised to our ancestors, Abraham and Jacob, long ago. The next reading is Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. And that's on page 787 in your Bibles. <clears throat> and I'll just find it. Mm. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him, so Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of a woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, cancelling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he cancelled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. 
You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven, so she has shown me so much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, Your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, Who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And the final reading is Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the, as the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. And here ends the reading of God's most precious word. Amen. Try that again. Whoops, I'm pulling the whole thing. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. <laughs> right. Well, Alistair suggested that I preach on our text of the year, Romans 1 to 16 to 17. But um, I got stuck. got stuck on one of the words, well, it's actually two of them. God's righteousness, and then I got all excited as I got into them more. So what you're going to get today is a lovely theological word study. So you're all looking forward to that. But hopefully it will just remind you again of why the events that we celebrate at Christmas and Easter are so special, and why that specialness should be with us every moment of every day and every night and how we can be totally relaxed about it. So just going to check that you haven't gone to sleep yet with the threat of um, a bit of theological word study. So here's a nice righteousness joke. There's only one vegetable righteousness righteous enough to face judgment day and for good reason. Does anyone know what that vegetable might be? No. Let us pray. <laughs> that went down like a lead balloon. <laughs> the other one I've got here, the first service didn't get it all. See if you do. Do you know what do you want to know why jogging is evil? I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> the wicked flee though no one pursues, but the righteous stand as bold as a lion. <laughs> So that's Proverbs 28, if you want to check that fact of life up. Now, at this point, you might be a bit confused, not because you actually like jogging, but because God's righteousness, which I've said I'm talking about, isn't actually mentioned in our text. But that's because of the translation. It's not because it's not actually there. So they've chosen to go with one of the nuances of the term. There's been a lot of debate um, over the years about exactly what Paul meant by God's righteousness. 
but it's clear that it stands right at the heart of his message and at the heart of what we believe about Christ and about our standing before God now and when we die. Um, over the ages, there's been a, a few major interpretations. So we'll start with the one that the Pew Bibles run with. So that's made right before God. This was a legal term of judgment in Greco-Roman society, so when Paul was around. And in our context, it implies a right status that God confers on us. It's as if we've been falsely accused of crime, and then we've been pronounced innocent at court, and our name cleared of any suspicion. But of course, the big difference there is that actually we're we aren't innocent, but we are guilty, but Jesus has taken our guilt. So he's made us like we are innocent. And so now we stand right before God. And often this word righteousness is translated as justification. We've been justified. Another way of interpreting it is that it's not just a new status that we've got, it's a new nature. So we've been transformed into right creatures when we were wrong ones. I don't know if any of you watched the television show 10 Years Younger in 10 Days, which um, I try to avoid because it really annoys me. But anyway, <laughs> sometimes I've seen the end bit and there's all these women, it always seems to be women, and they're gushing excitedly about how they now look and feel and act that they feel like new people. And all they did was they submitted to the ministrations of others and hey presto, they've become as they really are or should be, at least according to themselves and the producers. But we've got the genuine product. We're now as we should be because of the actions of Christ and we're right before God. In the 1940s there was a man called E.F. Scott, the notice actual name was, and he explains this by saying, we call a man righteous when he always acts by a strong sense of justice. But Paul means by righteousness that condition of soul which God requires. Men have become perverted and diseased. God has offered them by way of gift that right-wiseness which they once possessed and which they've lost through sin. And that word right-wiseness is what righteousness used to be in English, sort of changed over years. So another way of looking at God's righteousness is as an attribute of his character. So it's from his faithfulness to his covenant, that the agreement he made with his people and his promises, and now it's extended to all people. And it comes out of his rightness, his justice, his hesed, his loving kindness. And through that, we're saved. So in Hosea 2.19, God says, I will take you as my wife forever. So he's talking to Israel. I will take you as a wife for myself in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. Now, the most popular view these days is that God's righteousness is actually his saving actions. So throughout the Old Testament, God's righteousness is seen in the context of his relationship with Israel, his covenantal relationship. 
that pact they had where the people needed to love and trust and obey God and he then saves, delivers and vindicates them. There was a, another commentator in the 1950s called A.M. Hunter and he said, To us the righteousness of God suggests a divine attribute. To Paul, almost certainly, it suggested a divine activity. The righteousness of God in action. It is a dynamic, not a static phrase. And the clue to its meaning is in the Greek version of the Old Testament, where again and again it means God vindicating. God putting things right for his oppressed people. And righteousness becomes a synonym for salvation, rescuing his people and delivering them from their sin. So we have in Psalm 98, The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. And we see in Micah, in the reading we had, this linking of God's righteousness with the salvation of his people. I will endure the Lord's anger since I have sinned against him. Until he takes over my defence, administers justice on my behalf, and brings me out to the light where I will gaze on his righteousness. And we have it in Isaiah as well. My righteousness is near, my salvation is on the way. I will bring justice to the people. The coastlands put their hope in me, and they wait eagerly for me. And this salvation is for everybody, Paul says. It's not just for God's chosen people. All we have to do to access it is to believe, to have faith in God as the one he says he is, and in Christ as the solution to our world's problems. And through the cross, God put those things right for us and for his creation. Now the magnitude of that revelation of righteousness, as it's called in this section, was experienced by an actor called Bruce Marciano. He acted the part of Jesus in a film of Matthew's Gospel back in the, 90, uh, in, um, the 1990s. Um, I don't know if anyone's ever watched it. I haven't seen it. But he, I've been reading his autobiography and he took his acting part of Jesus very seriously and he put a lot of prayer into it and really tried to understand why Jesus did and said the things he did. And when they came to the crucifixion scene, even though he wasn't actually being crucified, he felt the horror and trauma of Jesus, what Jesus went through. And he retells some of his thoughts about this filming. And he says about it, then to take that ultimate step, the cross, we're talking about the single moment every letter and comma in the word turns on. Everything that went before leads up to it. And everything afterwards flows out of it. It's the single most tremendous release of power and glory in all of history. A moment that single-handedly holds the universe from being ripped apart like a dirty old rag. It's a moment of such incomprehensible magnitude it alone pays the penalty for every single wrong, every war and mass murder to every stolen pencil in universal history from day one on. So, 
These days, a lot of the commentators think that the Scots righteousness is probably a mixture of all those different sort of meanings and nuances. So, from his righteous character, God acted to save us, which made us right before him, and transformed us into righteous people. If you want all those righteous bits in there. Now, we do all have our own ideas of what righteousness might be as far as us humans go. So, I'll tell you a little story about a priest. So, he died and he went to heaven. And there was a small queue to get in. And when he gets to second in line, he overhears St. Peter asking some basic questions to the man in front of him. Like, what's your name, occupation, where are you from? The guy in front of the priest is wearing tight-fitting, torn black clothing, has greasy slip-back hair and an overall punky attitude. He responds with a thick New York accent, which I won't try. Yo, yo, my name is Joe. I'm a taxi driver from New York. St. Peter finds him on his list and says, Oh, yes, here you are, Joe. Taxi cab driver from New York. Welcome to heaven. Here's your silken robe and your golden staff. Go be seated amongst the highest saints. Now it's the priest's turn. Hi, St. Peter. My name is Anthony. I'm a priest from New Jersey. St. Peter finds him on the list and says, Oh yes, Anthony, the priest from New Jersey. Here's your cotton rag and your wooden stick. Go be seated amongst the common righteous people. Anthony is shocked and confused at this. Now hold on a minute. You're telling me that guy gets higher honours than me? I've spent the past 30 years of my life dedicated to the church and Catholic community. What's he ever done? St Peter smiles knowingly and says with compassion, Yes, I see how it can seem confusing, but here we go by results. When people listen to you preach, they snoozed. When people rode in his taxi, they prayed. <laughs> well, just like God's righteousness was his side of the covenant of his agreement with his people, Human righteousness is our side. So we need to love and trust and obey God. We need to worship him. One definition of righteousness is of people whose lives are lived in keeping with God's purposes, who live before him in faithfulness and obedience to him. And through that, they live upright and just lives. So how do we attain that righteousness? By believing and having faith faith in him. And it's the same word in Greek for both those things. Um, in um, Romans, Paul exemplifies faith, Abraham's faith. And the, one of the commentators I mentioned earlier, Mr Hunter, sees faith for Paul as being an utter trust with an element of obedience. He says that it means taking God at his word in Christ. It's the complete response of the soul to the good news of God embodied in Christ. One of our readings was about the lady who washed Jesus' feet with her hair. And she's just such an amazing example of what Christ wants us to be like and this whole thing of faith. 
And like all of us, she wasn't an angel in her life. But she demonstrated that love and trust and belief in Jesus. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She was made right through believing. Paul really emphasizes this role of faith to access salvation. And he uses a phrase that's really been debated by all the scholars, which is out of faith to faith. It could be implying that our faith is fed by Christ's faith, or that it should be based, as it was with the covenant with Israel, on God's faithfulness. Or maybe he's just emphasising the importance of faith. Or maybe all three. And it's a message that we need to hear again and again. That we don't have to do anything except believe. And it's often we just find it so hard to accept doing so little. And we, There's a story in the Old Testament in 2 Kings about Naaman. And it's often resonates with, with us, does with me. So Naaman was the commander of the Syrian army, but he had leprosy. And his wife had a servant girl who came from Israel. She said, why don't you go and see this prophet in Israel and he'll cure you. So um, Naaman goes off with lots of gifts, money, and a letter from the king to the king in Israel. king in Israel gets a bit upset because he doesn't know how to cure leprosy. But then Elisha, the prophet, hears about it, goes to the king and says, send him to me. So the commander goes off to Elisha's house. Elisha doesn't even come to the door. He sends out somebody and says, go and wash yourself in the river. And Naaman has a total hissy fit because he thinks that, you know, should be a bit more than just go and do something like that. Um, and a servant say to them, look, Naaman, if, well, they probably didn't say Naaman, they probably said, sir, if the prophet had told you to do something really hard, you would have done it. So why don't you just do what he said? So Naaman goes, goes in the Jordan River, is cured, and um, he tries to get Elisha to accept a gift. Elisha says, no way. Um, God who did it. And so Naaman says, from now on I know that the God of Israel is the only God in the whole world and I will only offer sacrifices to him. When I lived in Auckland, the part of my job as a music teacher I really liked most was private teaching. And um, one time, one of the families, they tended to be quite well-off families, um, they invited me to the Auckland Philharmonia's fundraising dinner. So somebody with lots of money would buy a table and then they'd invite people there and the orchestra would play for five minutes because that's all the people could cope with the music. They just like to be seen there. And um, then you'd have a nice dinner. And later I realised that this invitation that I'd been given hadn't just been a thank you. They invited me because I knew some of the players because I was a musician. And so they thought, you know, we can get some insider chats and we can feel quite privileged. And often that's what we think about getting God's righteousness, you know, that we 
We have to work for it. We have to do something for it. We can't just be given it. There was another family that I taught there who had a lot of money. Um, but the woman had grown up in a pretty normal situation. And her parents were sometimes at the house babysitting when I was teaching there. And there were some tensions in the family between them and the parents because the family would invite the parents, pay for them to do things, to go to events, try and give them expensive presents. And the parents felt quite awkward about accepting that. And then they would voice their frustrations because they couldn't find presents that the family would appreciate because the family had everything and they couldn't buy anything nearly as good as, as what they had any already. And I feel that we're often like those parents when it comes to, to God's gift of righteousness. We feel too awkward or too proud to accept what seems like such a generous handout. And we want to repay in some way, but there is no way. Now again, this is not a perfect analogy because it was no sacrifice for the rich family to buy this stuff, but it was that massive sacrifice for God and for Christ. Now John Wesley came to the realise of this importance of faith and just accepting God's gift when it came to sailing to America. A huge storm blew up and John Wesley with his group of um, friends were absolutely terrified. But on the ship praying with them was a group of Moravian Christians and they were totally calm. Aren't you afraid, asked John Wesley? No, they replied, we trust God. <coughs> now John Wesley and his group were terribly pious they did all the right things. They prayed, they had Bible study in Greek, they had self-examination, they did lots of charitable works, you know, giving money and looking after the poor. And they were even called the Holiness Club. But they had the works, they did the right things, but they didn't have faith. And when he returned to England after a pretty disastrous mission trip and through another terrifying storm, John Wesley explored this concept of faith and eventually recognised the power in the gospel that is accessed only by faith. One commentator calls this faith the quality of absolute reliance on God and his word rather than on human abilities, activities or assurances. Now that's got to have an impact on the way we are and the way we live life. There's an educator from Sydney, Michael Frost. He's written a book, Eyes Wide Open. And he feels that we've lost that power in the gospel, that it's become too commonplace, too much in the background. And because of this, our sharing of the gospel, whether we're doing or being or telling, has lost the power, that power of the revelation of God's righteousness that's mentioned in our text. Michael Frost gives an analogy of a church Christmas concert he attended where a woman performed a song, which is another thing that's always annoyed me, um, from a distance. I once had to play it with Cliff, Cliff Richard. Um, and 
Michael Frost was getting annoyed at it, like I did, um, when the act took a turn. Another woman got up and started singing God is Near in competition. So they had this sort of competition going on between this sort of song about God being way up there and God being here. And eventually she, she won the one that was singing God is Near. And it says it's often, often we live life, even at church events, as if God's at that distance and he can only participate in life at our invitation. It's like he's a sort of puppet on a string, you know. And while he won't force himself on us, he's still here and he's still working and he's waiting for us to take up his invitation to participate in what he's doing. We need to get that excitement, that gospel power back. We need to see that revelation of God's righteousness in all we do and see, and in the nature around us, in the people, in the things that happen. Now, Bruce Nacciano, the um, actor, he ends his chapter on filming the crucifixion with these words. Why would the Son of the living God, with all the power of heaven and earth at his fingertips, choose to do a thing like that? Be crucified, that is. The answer is simple, and it's been said time and time again. But may its reality wrap round your heart and find a deep, deep home like it never has before. Because he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Friend, may we all stop and take a fresh look at Jesus. May we all set our busy worlds aside, stop and turn our eyes on him who set everything aside, his very life, and turning his eyes on us. Jesus, who stretches out a big, callous, gentle hand, looks you in the eye, smiles as big as the sun, and says, Come to me, I am gentle in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. So may we take this gift of God's righteousness to heart. Maybe you can see a bit more depth of it, of what it means, which will help you grasp it. But whatever, let's take that step of belief of faith to meet that leap that God took through his great love for us and his great righteousness and let's live life in the light of the revealing of God's righteousness.